This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode two of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Monty Roberts' Equus Online University. Horsemanship Radio is part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. Thank you for supporting our sponsors to make this show possible. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. I have my producer, Glenn the Geek, here with me today. Hey, Debbie, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm ready to be back. I'm very excited that we're getting this show off the ground here. We, of course, did one episode together to kind of describe the show. If people missed that, they can go back and take a listen to it. But you're going to be on a regular schedule now, right? That's right. Twice a month. Very excited about the lineup that we have for everybody, too. Very good. And if, if people want to listen in to that first episode to hear exactly what's going to happen on Horsemanship Radio, they have a number of ways they can go back and take a listen to the show. One of them is you can listen to the show on our our application, our phone app. If you have Android or iOS, an iPhone or an iPad, you can go to the App Store and search for Horse Radio Network. All of the shows that we do are on there. It's very simple and easy to listen to the shows. You can also, if you're at home, just go to your computer and search for horsemanshipradio.com and go to the, each individual episode, hit the play button, and listen right on your computer. Or through iTunes, if you're an iTunes person and, and like listening uh, that way and syncing with your phone that way, just search in the podcast store on iTunes for Horsemanship Radio. So we have a bunch of different ways to listen to our show. It's a brave new world. It is, it is. <laughs> What's coming up on today's show? I'm excited. Today we have Monty Roberts, and uh, we also have Joel Baker before that. And Joel Baker and Monty Roberts are amalgamated together through a lot of a series of different uh, introductions. Um, just to intrigue you, one was the Queen of England. Very good. Mm-hmm. And Joel, I'm excited to hear the interview with him, too, because I'm a big polo fan. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say, because he's one of the top in the world. In the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then later on, what's your dad talking about today? You know what? He is going to tell us a little bit about um, his background to be able to talk on horsemanship. And uh, so he'll talk a little bit about why he believes that uh, we have a lot to look forward to in our relationships with our horses going forward. And some of the hopeful po- spots out there in those parts of the world where people think there might not be hope in horsemanship, but there certainly is. And I know you have a couple of segments towards the end of the show as well. Yeah, we got a couple of tricks up our sleeve. That's true. Um, I'm excited about the horsemanship mailbag. We've got uh, a question that comes in from Croatia today. Oh, Isn't that cool. interesting? Very yeah, good. yeah. Yep, and a little bit about uh, the world traveler. Our, wa- our well, where's Waldo himself? <laughs> Where in the world is Monty? <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Very good. Well, let's get it started uh, with your first interview. Tell us about Joel Baker. Very interesting life that Joel has led. Joel Baker is a native Californian raised right here in Pacific Palisades, which you think would be surf champion. But he attended Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, as an athletic scholarship uh, on an athletic scholarship in ski racing. So he's a snow guy, too. And he earned his B.A. in business administration in 1968. Uh, then in the early 80s, Joe was, Joel was ranked as one of the top 10 polo players in the United States. Uh, he had the honor of being chosen to play in the United States as a member of the Cup of the Americas team. Uh, the team spent three months in Argentina playing the best Argentine teams. And we know they're good in Argentina yes. and polo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throughout his polo career, Joel has won every major tournament in Florida and the Western United States in polo, ranging from 12 to 26 goals. That's good. Among his achievements are winning in the U.S. Open, America's Cup, USPA, Gold Cup, the Silver Cup twice, and the Pacific Coast Open four times. Joel and his wife, Charlotte, live on a 50-acre ranch in the San Ynez Valley. The ranch has a polo field and dressage ring where the bakers breed, raise, and train horses for polo and dressage. Well, hello, Joel Baker. We're really pleased to have you on our show today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure and honor to be asked to be on your show. Well, thank you. Um, Now, people know a little bit about you. I've introduced you in your bio. But uh, now that they know a little bit about the height of your horsemanship, um, we'd like to hear a little bit about how your interest in horses began. Okay. Well, um, I uh, grew up as a kid watching all the cowboy movies and 
and uh, and just kind of got fascinated by these horses. And when I was nine years old, we moved uh, near a polo field uh, down in the L.A. area, Will Rogers State Park. And so I started hanging out up there, and, and the polo players would actually let me walk their horses. And, man, I thought that was great. So one thing led to another, and I started uh, uh, going up and riding bareback. My mother got me a bareback pad, and <laughs> so I would be bouncing along and fall off and bouncing along, so I kind of figured out how to stay on. And um, I just uh, uh, kind of became very infatuated with these uh, fantastic animals, these gentle giants, and how they really did uh, would take care of me as a uh, uh, young kid who didn't knew nothing about them. That's nice of your mom to to be so. You know, these days they're always worried about everybody breaking something or poking your eye out or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Would she drive you over there and and uh, just leave you? No, off? actually, we lived uh, right uh, on the uh, right next to Will Rogers State Park, so I could walk or pick oh, my literally. bicycle. Oh, that's and fantastic. then I, you know, when I was 12, I was asked by some of the polo players to feed their horses. And so I actually got a job feeding, getting $5 a horse a month to feed them morning and evening. Uh-oh. So I had 25 horses that I was feeding in the morning and evening, and I would, and I ended up taking my savings and I bought a go-kart. So I'd go flying <laughs> up to the hill in this go-kart to feed the horses in the morning and in the evening. That's amazing. So you had a few more horsepower then. But so, so was there a mentor? Did you find somebody there who helped you with the horses? Yes. When, when, um, when I first started uh, hanging out up there, uh, about a two, oh, year and a half, two years, uh, one, of our, uh, one of my good fr- became a very good friend, now he's a neighbor, Gary Wooten, uh, started taking polo lessons. And he's about four years older than I am. And um, his, uh, he, his mother was able to acquire the services of Bob Skeen, who was the top-rated polo player in the United States at the time, 10 goals. And so I'd watch on the fence, and you know, Bob teaching Gary how to ride and how to hit the ball, and then I go home and trial out on my bicycle. Wow. <laughs> and so we ended up having a heck of a bicycle polo team in the Pacific Palisades. Um, but I used, I was also very uh, into ski racing in those days, so mm. I'd use the money I made feeding horses to buy skis to compete on, and um, the skiing was quite good to me. It actually paid for my college education. I went to college on a scholarship, uh, uh, athletic scholarship for ski racing, Fort Lewis and Durango, Colorado. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so you're, you're an athlete all the way around. It was, what was it about polo that challenged you? Was it the fact that there was a, a horse under you or uh, just another athletic ability? Yeah, no, the, the, the horses always, uh, I always was just fascinated about being able to get on this large animal and learn to communicate with it and how they tried so hard to understand what I was trying to do or trying to tell them and how they would do it. And so I always dreamed as a uh, teenager of someday having a lifestyle where I uh, would have a a polo ranch and raise all my own polo ponies. Mm. And, um, and so, but, and also to be, have the freedom to be able to go skiing and do all the Mm. other things I like to do. So mm-hmm. when I graduated from college um, and didn't make the Olympic team in, back in 68, um, I started uh, uh, working in L.A. and playing polo, and I could ride and communicate with horses well enough where um, the players there at Will Rogers would give me their problem horses, um, and so I would uh, play everybody's problem horse, and, and that was my string horses. Fabulous. So there's this image of Ralph Lauren and polo and uh, you know, you just you just sort of conjured up some of that dream that you had. It, is it is the image right? Is it just like we would imagine? <laughs> well, uh, I think some of us like to think so, but actually, polo is most popular in third world countries. I've played in Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa. Uh, Australia's not third world, but Australia is very big. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Zealand, and mm-hmm. then all through South America. Argentina, of course, is the uh, hot uh, is, is where polo is the most popular, and they have the best polo players now coming from Argentina because there's so many of them playing down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, and then in the United States, the grassroots polo in the summertime uh, it's it spread all over the United States. There's polo clubs in Spokane, Washington. 
to uh, Jackson, Wyoming, uh, Aspen, uh, you know, uh, Denver, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, you know, all throughout the United States where in the country area, polo is rather popular and it's not expensive. It gets more expensive when you get into the city or, um, yeah, when you, when you have to play closer to cities, but when you're out in the country, it's, it's rather, uh, you know, you just need two or three horses and away you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you, I'm curious about the horses. How do you choose your polo ponies? Well, when I started out, I couldn't afford really good horses and my handicap was going up where I needed good horses. So I would go to thoroughbred sales and, and, and buy three-year-olds that were too small, that, that, that kind of a runts and, and, and really were too small a race. Mm-hmm. and work with them, and the real athletic ones ended up being really good polo ponies. And from that, <clears throat> I had a fantastic mare, uh, throwbed mare called I'm Hep, and uh, she, I started breeding her and, about 30 years ago, um, and so in the last 30 years, I've been breeding and raising all my own horses. So now, uh, of the, all the polo horses we have here on the ranch, over 20, are all homebreds. That's and, great. Uh, that have been bred, raised, and trained uh, by me. Yeah, that's amazing. So mostly thoroughbreds, but of a small ilk. Yeah, thoroughbred, uh, they all have the thoroughbred blood in them. They have bothered uh-huh. and papered. But we find that the thoroughbreds in the uh, faster polo, uh, harder polo, uh, do the best because they have a, a, a better lung, lung capacity. Mm-hmm. So they, they, when they get a little tired, they actually end up playing better. And they last longer, and they and so they... They really uh, love to play polo. Uh, quarter horses are great and quick, but after three or four minutes, uh, they tend to tire out. And then they tend to, uh, when they get tired, when they are, are vulnerable to be hurt. Mm-hmm. And Arabians aren't quite built correctly uh, in the back end to withstand the running, stopping, and turning that polo requires. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything about the starting process that's different from other disciplines? No, not really. Uh, <clears throat> uh, actually, uh, we really uh, have uh, followed uh, what um, Monty Roberts is doing today. I started doing 30 years ago where we did a lot of work on the ground uh, and rake them on the ground. Uh, before we get on them, uh, I'll have them in the round pin turning to the right, turning to the left, stopping, backing up. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you work with them at one or two weeks, uh, only 10, 15 minutes a day. Um, and they they get to enjoy understanding and working and pleasing you, and then you just kind of crawl on, and next thing you know, and they know you're riding them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take long from there to take them on. Um, the the big challenge then is just to build their strength and muscles, yeah. and and uh, uh, so that they uh, can uh, do the things you like them to do on the polo field. Yeah. So you probably get this question all the time, but I'm just thinking of of my ideal looking polo pony. We've got them down uh, in Cota de Casa and Santa Barbara. Why do they shave the forelock off? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The forelock is um, more of a maintenance type of thing. We shave the manes off so the mane doesn't get uh, tangled up in the rein hand. Yeah. Because when we play, we're really up on the horse or the horse's withers. Kind of like a jockey's up over that's the center of the horse up over yeah. the horse is withers, and and so the forelock usually comes off too just as a maintenance area and it's a look, um, you know I, you know it's, that's the best explanation I have is just the kind yeah. of yeah, <laughs> it's traditional huh, right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, they're beautiful. I mean, everybody who's got that vision of and, and have ever been lucky enough to go buy polo fields while everybody's out there, it's a little bit like like the bicyclers on the road that you all have uniforms and you know it's not like your typical um um giddy up and go sport i I love that about it it's got that traditional lean to it the great thing about if you if you if you like uh working with horses and really into horses it's one of the few competitions where uh or events where you're it's not all over in three or four minutes you know you you play for an hour and a half uh, sometimes two hours so there's a lot, uh, you get to participate a lot more. And the other thing I found about polo is it doesn't really matter how good an athlete you are. Oh. You have to be able to communicate with the horse. Yeah. And, and then every chucker, uh, a game is made up of six chuckers, you change horses. So you have to, you know, it's always changing. So 
you learn to communicate with your horse, and then you need to communicate with your teammates and understand what kind of what horses they're riding, so you know what they're capable of doing. Because every trucker, they, when they change horses, their capabilities also change. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, when you're playing in really competitive polo, we learn the characteristics of the horses we're playing against. We know pretty mm-hmm. much the characteristics of the player, but what kind of horse is he riding? Because he only can play as well as the horse is able to perform for him. Mm, right. And right. so it, it it really ends up being a little bit like three dimensional chess. And uh, it, but it definitely a, a partnership, uh, of working with the animal. Yeah. What what qualities does your current favorite horse have? Well, um, they they're uh, very quick in uh, movement, um, uh, have good speed, but uh, are still light. And while they're running, they can actually move a little bit sideways, which sounds kind of weird. But ah. um, yeah, diagonal. Goes. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. kind of diagonal, but at at, at mm-hmm. top speed. Um, mm-hmm. They also have a, a competitive to it. If you watch horses, young horses playing a pasture, what do they do? Yeah. They take off and they go running down uh, across the field, uh, kicking up their heels, uh, riding each other off, uh, playing and, 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 and kind of racing, and they get to the end of the pasture and they stop and they spin around and they come back. And that's all a polo game is. Is, that's what we're doing on the polo field is sure. we're running down the field and, and uh, you know, competing, riding each other off, and then we get to the end, we stop and come back and, come back and go the other way. So yeah. the horse really enjoys the game. They really, uh, you can't make a horse play the, the game. They have to really want to. And they become, um, they really learn how to uh, compete. And so the really good horses, when you get into a, a ride-off, that's where you, you come up and you're riding against another player, mm-hmm. another horse. Um, your really good horses will kind of put their neck down and put their shoulder into that other horse and, and right. have a tendency to be able to win the ride-off. That's great. And a lot of people don't think – they think of thoroughbreds maybe as competitive that way, but they don't think of the average horse that way. But they, but they are in the field as babies. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, right. If, if somebody was listening to this and they were interested in getting into polo – love horses what's what's an advice what's the best advice you can give to a young person maybe who wanted to become um get into polo or even just becoming a better horse person well you know and in, in starting myself learning from watching bob skeen the top player in the world teach these very fundamental things and then uh, wh- uh helping uh, other young players start in the game it's very important uh the first 30 days the habits you pick up then kind of stay with you so it's good to seek out a, a polo school, a, a polo instructor who has uh, who who has has a higher handicap uh, and has uh, been there before. You know, has, uh, has great form. It seems like in polo they rate the players between minus two and ten. The average player is zero, is in the zero range, and then once they go up the chart, that's like a tennis player. You know, A's would be like. Tennis A, ten, A, zero B A, and then then it gets into the more professional. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can find an instructor who's who's been worth three goals or more, usually has has to have very the right kind of uh, fundamentals to hit the polo ball and ride the horse. So it's good to get some uh, instruction from that type of player, or it can be an instructor who's been trained by a by better players and has been a good observer. Um, but the, most of the polo clubs around the country have uh, instructors that are very good that are licensed with the United States Polo Association. And, uh, but I think it's very important to start out with the right fundamentals mm-hmm. and, and be a little patient. Don't try to play and t- for the first 10, 20, 30 days. Get your fundamentals under control. Then mm-hmm. the rest of your polo career will be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, are women... Getting into the the sport too, I see oh, a lot yeah. of men. Oh yeah, I think in yeah. the last twenty years, more women have joined and started playing polo than men. I think thirty-eight or forty percent of all the registered oh. players in the United States are women, mm-hmm. and um, they're they're, uh, uh, they're and they're rated equally. They play equally the men. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no discrimination one way or the other, um, and it is a game of finesse. It's not a game of strength. So the women do yeah. well in polo. So yeah, so they can move around. I, that Adolfo Adolfo Cambiaso, I know is the I think he's still the number one player in the world, isn't he? 
One of the top right. players, yeah. One of the top players, yeah. I mean, he he is as flexible as any person I've ever seen, and it doesn't look like as much strength as acrobatics up there, huh? Yeah. Yeah, no, he's like a monkey on the back of the horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He does just freaky moves, just amazing. But th- there's a woman that we were able to use on the um, Monty's Equus Online University um, named Isabella Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, sh- she was a top collegiate player, and... Um, that was real interesting to watch because she was transitioning. When we did our lesson on the university, she was transitioning into the pros. Um, Is there a big, steep uh, divide between the collegiate level players and going into the pros? No, not really. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and and she is a very good player, but uh, no, they, they all are, um, uh, you know, the, the, the top intercollegiate players are uh, very competitive players in all types of polo. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we had out here in Santa Barbara, Westmont, won the intercollegiates this last year. And the Yurts boys are uh, some of the real up-and-coming uh, young players in the game today. Yeah. So uh, you just got back from Beijing. What, what day this week? Literally I got back just... on Sunday. We were in, ah. down in Taizhen, which is south of Beijing, about 70 miles. And there's a large development down there uh, based around uh, Polo. Uh, they call the 300 room hotel the Polo Hotel, mm. and they have a stable of over 200 polo ponies they've acquired from Australia, New Zealand, and England. Wow. And they host these international tournaments, uh, three of them a year. And so this was a Nations Cup, and they invited the United States, Argentina, England, and then they put an all star team together of other players around the world to play for Hong Kong. Mm. And, um, and it was a very, uh, uh, quite a good competition. Excellent. So uh, horses were not so big about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago in, in China. Are they being treated well now under the, the yeah, sort of the, yeah. yeah? Yeah, 30 years ago when I visited China, I don't think I saw a horse because they were pulling a cart. But yeah. these horses, they, they built these beautiful stables out of uh, sandstone and uh, large stalls, uh, like 16 by 16, and um, they they hired uh, all uh, 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 grooms from Argentina and, and New Zealand, Australia, England, and Good. then um, and then they have each groom has two Chinese helpers. So each groom is in charge of eight horses, and then a couple of Chinese helpers to work them. And they're taking tremendous care of the horses. That, that for a string of horses to mount um, four teams of 24 goals is really amazing. And they do it very well. Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. I'm excited to get over there and see some of the things. I've been hearing great things about the whole industry, not just horse racing, which has you know, been in the Hong Kong area for a long time. Switching gears just a little bit, I don't want to miss out on the conversation about how honored we were to have you um, be a part of the ceremony where you were at Guards Polo in 2012 uh, during the Alab Tour um, polo match there, and you were honored by the Queen. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and and also what what maybe has has come of that for you? Yeah, that was a that was a real thrill and quite an honor to be asked to uh, participate in that. Um, uh, Monty uh, Roberts has been uh, training the Queen's horses now for gee, I think twenty years, and mm-hmm. and uh, I believe the Queen was concerned about uh, some of the. Um, Grooms on how they were uh, taking care of the polo ponies, and Monty said, well, "It's not that way everywhere." And, and he and he used myself and the Gracidas brothers and uh, Carlos and Nemo and uh, Combi also have people that have uh, been training with Monty and uh, have a whole different way of uh, you know are not breaking horses the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to put a spotlight on that, and so mm-hmm. she invited us for a day of polo and and high tea and. And gave us all mm-hmm. certificates, and it was a real treat to to uh, be entertained by her. She was very, very uh, cordial and very personable. Yeah, very. Was that the first time you had met her? First time I had met her, I'd played polo with her son a couple of times, Charles, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I knew her husband from the seventies when he visited uh, Chicago. But uh, oh. the first time I ever met met the Queen. We're going to have a photo of that up on the website that people can refer to, uh, the group photo with the Queen, just for proof, I guess, you know. Um, <laughs> has that encouraged you, do you think, to uh, 
and carry on what was started by by you being introduced to Monty's Join Up Concepts? Oh, I uh, I mean, we're every day talking with people and everything, trying to help them uh, uh, communicate better with their horses, and and um, and you know that's just uh, uh, I think it helps uh, verify that uh, uh, Monty's what Monty's done such a great job around the world is uh, is giving the horse a, a, an equal opportunity to show what it can really do and and that um, uh, they don't need to be beat uh, in this mm-hmm. position. Uh, they mm-hmm. just need to be shown the way. And um, <clears throat> so um, I think uh, with the Queen's, uh, the publicity the Queen brings in supporting uh, these methods uh, mm-hmm. is really big, I think, in the, for all horses in, anywhere in the world. Yeah, I agree. Well, we're going to keep checking in with you, too, and see how that legacy continues. I really appreciate it. You have a website. I know that um, people probably like to learn a little bit more about you. Follow your schedule. Well, my, my website is more on my, uh, the financial planning side. It's sure. Jay Baker at uh, J.R. Baker Group. But um, uh, my wife, I think you'll be interviewing her, Charlotte Bridal Baker, mm-hmm. uh, keeps a uh, up-to-date website on what's happening in our household and is a great okay. place to figure out where we're, where we're going next. Good. We'll use both of those. Thank you so much, Joel Baker, for sharing a little bit about your horse life with us. My pleasure. Happy trails. Interesting interview, Debbie. And you know what I was surprised at? We've, is Polo tends to have a bad rap in the training department mm-hmm. uh, as being kind of heavy-handed. That's the rap they have, whether that's justified or not. Mm-hmm. So I was glad to hear that there's a lot of people out there that are, are you know, like Joel, that are into natural horsemanship. And, and, you know, maybe that'll change that reputation they have over, you know, have developed over time. It's already doing it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Glenn. The, the thing that's... Uh probably revolutionized the most is the fact that they have, uh, it came from a real uh, deep South Latin American, you know, all the best guys were out of Argentina and a a lot of areas that are traditionally known to be rough. And um, the, the difference is that it's become so much more of an international sport. They're seeing there are better ways. It's very exciting. Not only that, but it gets expensive having disposable horses, and they don't want that any more than any other owner would want that. And so they're saying, hey, if you've got a better way, Monty Roberts, we'll listen to you because we know you come out of the West as well. So what did you do to recognize that? That's interesting. And, you know, the economic downturn probably helped that a little bit because they I had suppose. to start keeping their horses around a little longer. Yeah. And keeping them healthy God. a little longer and, you know, training them correctly in the first place. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm glad to see it. Glad to see it. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I'm excited about with this show that you've put together is, is seeing how natural horsemanship has really gone into all different parts of the horse world. It's not just in the, on, you know, Western, uh, on the Western side. That's right. That's right. The um, behavioral aspects of horses are the same the world over. So if you can help a person uh, fix their issues, it's never a horse issue. It's usually a people issue. But if you can help people do that, uh, they, they will find better ways to treat their horses. When they're frustrated, it's like a computer. You want to throw it out the window, right? Right, right. I mm-hmm. wanted to do that today with mine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, he, his wife is going to come on the show in a future episode, and she is in, in the dressage world. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. Um, those two disciplines do have, um, first of all, they're, they're at a very high level and a very um, specific uh, community that uh, partake in these. But dressage is huge, and it still gets a bad rap for some of the things that are traditional. It comes from war and the moves that happen in war, but that's not the horse's fault. And so... Um, I think you'll hear from Charlotte that she is kind and quiet and loves her horses. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to that in a future show, too. Me, too. Me, too. Well, who's coming up next? So we have today Monty Roberts. I think uh, everybody would know something, some aspect of his life or his career. He's known as the man who listens to horses. He's led an extraordinary life. He is an award-winning trainer of championship horses. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he has been a Hollywood stuntman. And um, near and dear to my heart, he's been a foster 
dad to 47 foster children and three of his biologically own uh, too, and a creator of the world-renowned and revolutionary equine training technique called Join Up. Over the 60 years, Monty has discovered that he could utilize the nonverbal communication that goes on between horses. And this really has changed everything for him about working with horses. Uh, He has now achieved a lifetime of international awards and accomplishments, including nine world's championships in the show arena. Not everybody knows that. He's performed at every level. He regularly trains for the Queen Elizabeth, for Queen Elizabeth II at the Royal Stables, and he tours the globe demonstrating in front of live audiences with horses he's never seen before. He's received a doctorate from the University of Zurich in behavioral sciences for his, his breakthrough work, and he recently received an MVO award, a member of the Victorian Order from Her Majesty, who also became patron of the nonprofit that he founded. Uh, in part, he, she was became patron for his work with horses and with veterans with stress-related injuries. Uh, Monty now, he incorporates equus, which is what he calls the silent language of gestures like signing up for the deaf, into his nonviolent training approach called join up. So he developed the way to stop the cycle of violence that's typically accepted in traditional horse breaking and that he had witnessed while he was growing up. Um, he's always been convinced that there is a more effective and gentle method, and he, he's created a consistent set of principles that uses the horse's inherent methods of communication and herd behavior. So now Monty's mission is to leave the world a better place for horses and for people too. Let's welcome Monty Roberts after word from one of our sponsors. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I know that I'm transforming the lives of horses globally. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. There's a new lesson on there each week, all the way from join up to advanced. Watch world's champions give their lessons. Join at MontyRoberts.com. Go to my Equus Online University. You can transform your horse too. And my guest today is Monty Roberts. Hi, Dad. Hi, Debbie. This is the first time for us and there you sit almost 200 miles away in your home. I don't want them to think you're still home uh, uh, yeah. after all these years, but um, this is fun. And uh, I am your dad, so you might as well call me dad. Yeah, thanks. That'll be a lot easier than Monty. Sounds a little formal for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to have you on here. I, I know you've, you've been a professional horse trainer for over seven decades now, and I'm not going to rub that in. But there probably aren't many breeds that you haven't trained, right? That's correct. I I don't know how what the count is, but it's nearly a, a global array of breeds. Definitely. And you first, I want to introduce you to an audience that may or may not know you. Um, I'm not going to assume that you first gained widespread um, fame in the world with the release of your New York Times bestselling book, The Man Who Listens to Horses. And for our audience, that was an autobiography for you, and that chronicled your your life, your your upbringing, and and the development of what you call nonviolent horse training methods. And you even have a name for it. You called it Join Up. That's right, Debbie. And it was requested by the Queen. And the first time she requested it, I thought she wanted a how-to book, you know, to say, do this and do this and do this. And then she said to me... Uh, you know, this doesn't work because how do you come out of the blue with something brand new to the whole world and not Mm -hmm. tell them how you got here? Uh, First, we have to hear about your life. And then the book morphed into a near autobiography. Yeah. You, uh, you often joke around when we're, we're talking about your career and you say that you did not get into the horse business until you were four. No, three. Oh, okay. oh, sorry. I've exaggerated. Yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> got to add another year to that. Then I wasn't in well, the horse business till I was three. Before that, true. I was learning to walk and talk, and you know uh, all those things Silly. that a three-year-old and a two-year-old and a one-year-old do. And it's absolutely serious. I can remember that at three years of age, my father was saying, "You need to put in more hours in the saddle because you're going to show that." horse ginger pretty soon now. And on June the 26th of 1939, 
I showed him with competition up to 16 years of age, and I won first. But that wasn't very fair because it was a bunch of kids that ride about an hour a week, and I was riding six, eight hours a day. Yeah, I guess that um, you have a perspective that there are very few walking the earth right now, especially in about horsemanship that nobody else does. So what I would love to cover in today's episode is what, in your perspective, is the state of horsemanship today? Well, you know, it's, it's all over the map, Debbie. And um, we could celebrate to say that it's changing faster than it's ever changed before. And I'm talking about 6,000 years since we began to domesticate horses. It's changing faster than it ever has. And it's improving faster than it ever has. Um, but when you're 78 now, as I am, you're in a hurry and you don't think it's fast enough and you want things to go uh, a lot better. So there's still unbelievable violence in the world of training horses. It's going on today. And there's even people who will stand up and look at that camera and profess that it's the way to go. Uh, that disturbs me greatly. So we have a lot of work to do, but there's always work to do. And I guess if there wasn't work to do, then we just tie a string to our toe and go fishing or something. That's and uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not into that uh, at this moment in time. I've, I've got work to do. And it's exciting. It really is exciting. The world of horsemanship is changing dramatically. Good to hear. I, I'm sure there are a lot of us out there that sometimes worry that we we're still seeing uh, we're firsthand witness really to to violent methods at equestrian centers and people are still seeing that uh, and a lot of people deny that. But um, when you were working as a child, when you were working in the industry, you watched a more um, compliant owner. I think uh, watching trainers. Uh, work on horses with whips, work on horses with chains, um, and, and it was acceptable. Do you think that people were more violent back then? Do you think that it was more widely acceptable to people back then, or are we all the same still? Debbie, what it was is that the world was convinced that was the only way. And people will, if they love horses and they want to work with horses, they'll just stand aside and, and let the professional beat the horse into submission, and then they'll go on and try to make a life with that animal. And indeed, almost everybody that I met at that day and time thought that was the only way you could do it. And so my mission is to say that it is my fault and the fault of everybody that thought they knew a better way not to get it out there earlier. If there's any regret in my life, it is that I didn't start early enough. And I know that there's a time and a place for everything, but really, we've got to stop this business. You know that the whip is still the number one selling piece of equipment in the tax shops yeah, of the right. world. And uh, there's people on TV and in the books and doing uh, demonstrations today that show you how to whip them, how hard to whip them, where to whip them, and when to whip them. And uh, whipping the flight animal is the quintessential idiocy of all time. It just runs adrenaline up, and that takes learning down. Uh, there is no need for whipping. We've got to figure a better way, which is to cause a discomfort, if you will, put the horse to work, or, or cause slight discomfort when they're wrong, but look for the way to reward the horse when they get it right. That's the critical issue. Right. I like that. You went on and you won, maybe people don't know this, but you won actually nine world championships in the show ring. They often credit you with gra your groundwork and uh, join up. And um, when, you were, when you were working so hard to win those world championships, was it fun? Or, or was it something that you felt you needed to prove? Well, there were fun times, Debbie, but I never had a youth. I never had uh, a childhood, if you will. Um, and the part that I had to deal with my father was not fun, uh, where he demanded from me and uh, was extremely violent with me. That was not fun. 
when I could get off with ginger and then brownie and then Dantac and so forth and so on, when I could get off by myself with them, gosh, it was fun. And mm. those horses tried for me. Uh, I know the scientists say that no horse can try for you. They appeared to be trying for me. Mm. And I loved every minute of my private life with horses. And Debbie, particularly, it's well known now, that private life that I had out there uh, in northern Nevada with the Mustangs. That was unbelievable. And, um, you know, I had a private moment last night with Leroy the deer out in front of the house here um, yeah. that is, uh, is just beyond the pale. Um, people who are wildlife scientists say that no deer that hasn't been pinned up or raised on a bottle could ever allow you to touch them if they're just in the wild. And Leroy was never in a pen. Leroy was never given a bottle and um he came to me last night and i stroked him all over and he literally was kind of like calling his friends in and they were coming and they were standing all around me and it has to be when i'm alone if there's people there um you know we're building some blind like things now with the trailers and stuff to to try to chronicle this because mm -hmm. um it's those private times when human and animal come together in a partnership that are so precious. That's true. That is true. And the flight animal, whether it be deer or horses, uh, has a lot of the same mechanisms, a lot of the same, uh, you recognize a lot of the same instincts? Oh, my word, yes. You know, the deer and antelope, along with the horses, were those open land grazers that needed to see a mile in every direction. And if a predator came around, they got the heck out of there. There was no intention on their part to stalk, kill, or devour another animal. And um, violence was just something they didn't want in their lives at all. So, uh, yeah, the similarities are great. And the deer and the horse have virtually exactly the same language. The only real difference is that the deer flight mechanism is ratcheted up about a hundred times more mm. than the horse. But that makes them really good teachers because they right. charge you a big price when you get it wrong. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes, I mean, I've spent weeks without uh, the ability to get Leroy to come anywhere near me. Oh, and this Leroy. all began with Grandma uh, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and they charge you a big price and they make you work your way back into that trust. And that's good teaching. Yeah, it sure is. I, I can't imagine that you had mentors for deer, but who were some of your mentors for your horsemanship growing up that we might, might recognize some names? Well, yeah, the no-name Mustang, <laughs> the generic <laughs> Mustang that's uh, out there, uh, you know, generations later, trying to get people to understand that they don't have to force them to do anything, that if they work with them and communicate with them, they're, they're much easier to train than people gave them credit for. That's the Mustang. They were my mentors. They were my teachers. But then Ginger and Brownie and all the horses that I dealt with in those early days were huge on my list of professors. And then my eighth-grade teacher, Sister Agnes Patricia, She's down, uh, clearly stated, as the person that saved my life, caused me to not accept what my father did to me, but to understand it better. And mm -hmm. Sister Agnes Patricia encouraged me to go into psychology courses in university and to figure out what happens with this human creature that comes down generation after generation, accepting violence in their lives and uh, submitting to violence. You know that women who marry a violent man uh, will generally eventually divorce him or separate from him and go back to another violent man. It just gets in our DNA. And uh, being controlled or controlling is just as addictive one as the other. Mm -hmm. And so in psychology... We, we need to learn how some way to break that trend. We learn, need to break that chain within us, each individual, 
and uh, go off on our own with a pledge to ourselves that we get violence out of our lives. I am, as I'm on this phone with you, a violent human being because I am, I am uh, intensely uh, um, imprinted to violence mm-hmm. from four years of age. And that imprintation does not go away. It's only something you control. Mm-hmm. It's only something you fail to control, one or the other. And I'm not proud of the times that I failed to control it. I played American football uh, because I say American football. The people that are listening to this would just say football. But all over the world, they call soccer football. So I have That's to say right. American yeah. football. And I played American football because it allowed me to legally hurt people. And right. I really wanted to hurt people. And I, I followed my father's direction, and I was abusive to horses because he made me be abusive to horses, mm-hmm. or I would get bones broken. I had 72 broken bones before I was 12 years of age, now provable by uh, CAT scans and MRIs. And, um, and, and that's an imprintation. But Sister Agnes Patricia helped me break that. And then, basically after that, Debbie, my... My mentors were traditional horsemen that used harsh techniques. And I listened to them for their good points. And I tried to set aside those points that were uh, less than good. Don Dodge, Clyde Kennedy, Jimmy Williams, some of the greatest, you know. And then they moved me on to teach people like Greg Ward and Mm -hmm. Philip Rawls and Ron Rawls. Uh, Ron Rawls, twice uh, world's greatest horseman. Um, it, it's been so much fun to watch those youngsters come on. And Ron Rawls is a unique one in that he was traditional, exceedingly traditional, came to me, moved over, and then went back on his own to traditional, and then came back to me and said, Monty, I've come full circle. That's interesting. You were right. And it was after that that he was winning the World's Greatest Horseman contest. Mm. Why do you think somebody might go back to it? Isn't it impatience? Is it just uh, muscle memory? We're human. Mm-hmm. We go back to things that we can control through force because we're human. That's what mm. we do. We've been doing it since caveman times. Mm. Wives were good wives if they stayed in the cave raised children, (laughs) kept their mouths shut, and, uh, you know, cooked the food. And and, and often they were beat up by a guy who said that's the way to control them, and children the same way. Uh, I was was so badly treated as a child that, you know, it, it would be an arrest today. Yeah. But in those days, it was just, you know, that's his kid. He can do what he wants with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're seeing some of that. It almost parallels the revolution in horse training that we saw happening in the 1990s. When your book came out, The Man Who Listens to Horses, in 1996 in the U.K., 1997 in the U.S., it seemed like at that point horse owners were either – remaining to be untrained themselves or intimidated by professional trainers that they were paying. So how did, I think it's interesting, we got to where we are today with so many owners, they're now taking clinics and they seem to be happily taking a more active role in the treatment of, yeah, of their I mean, horses it's, and trainers. It's really strange. Let me give you a few uh, of the definitive comments that were made. Listen, Molly Roberts, you can tell me I'm wrong. But you can't say my daddy was wrong. He was the greatest horseman that ever lived. And by God, if you're going to talk down on him, I'm going to get you. Mm. And uh, another one. Hey, Monty Roberts, I'm not going to tell you who's calling, but you're going to die tomorrow in Twin Mm. Falls, Idaho. I can shoot through that screen round pen, and I'm going to kill you tomorrow night. Twin Falls, Idaho. Now, the police were called in on that one, and they tracked this thing back because it came through the hotel 
uh, Walla Walla Washington Hotel switchboard, and uh, they tracked it back, and mm. they made an arrest, but they didn't prosecute him. Uh, he said, I'm just trying to scare him off, and mm. maybe he was, you know. But my life was threatened at least once a week for the first two or three years. There was one woman that spent $11 million, $11 right. million dollars writing books, sending things all over the world, hiring people to put up websites, some of which are still there, uh, unfortunately, because they'll do anything to preserve the status quo because mm -hmm. they don't know how to move on and change the status quo. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. So you state that your message is violence is never the answer. And you've been encouraged by Her Majesty, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, and uh, awards from the ASPCA. So you've been encouraged since then. You, you went through the fire. I imagine that opened a lot of doors for other clinicians in that industry. But um, you have now shown people that there are gentler, more effective ways to train. Are, are horses still subjected, though, to the wild, wild west today? Or, or do you think people kind of um, are hiding that a little bit more? Well, they're hiding it, uh, Debbie, when it was, um, you know, all over Hollywood, uh, praised right. as the tough guy that could do it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. There's an, an immense amount of films that were done showing showing violence, but Recently, there was a documentary out where this guy ropes a horse by one hind leg, dallies around the saddle horn, and drags the horse backwards by one hind leg around the pen. And I heard people saying, well, you know, he did the best he could with the horse. While the horse was being dragged, mm. he had another man come in and put a saddle on him. And then the, he had the guy get on the horse with a hind leg roped. One hind leg. And every time the horse would try to buck, he, he would uh, ride away and drag the horse again so that the horse couldn't buck. That's crazy. And the next day, the horse attacked the guy that was riding him, and they shot him that night. So, and, they, and they said it on the documentary. Mm -hmm. And I personally had students of mine say, well, you know, they, they put the guy in a pretty good light. It, oh. It's sad when the human mm -hmm. brain can go that way. And when we can flim-flam people, um, there's people that go around, you know, and they'll, when they're going to hit the horse, they'll play the music real loud and start singing a song or something. I, I don't <laughs> know what all they do. But uh, it's crazy what we yeah. try to cover up for in this world of uh, domination, force, and intimidation. Right, right. T tell us more about your decision to create your Equus Online University? Well, you know, here we go with technology, huh? So I have to sit back and have people explain to me, you know, Monty, you could go out to tens of thousands of people if you just do some lessons, little five to ten minute lessons, um, and put them up on an online university. And um, it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars to create these lessons, and you're probably not going to get much for it. But wouldn't it be a good introduction to your principles and a broadening of the knowledge of your principles so that then they could go seek out live bodies that could help them learn the principles? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that help? And I said, yeah, it would help if that's possible to do. I don't know where you send this picture up in the air and then it comes down in somebody's computer somewhere but and I'm that far removed from how this all works but um, indeed it does work and now when I go to France as I did last week when I go to East Germany as I did last month um, people say oh I'm on your online university and Debbie let me just say to you we need to do more in the way of translation because these poor people are out there trying to understand what we're saying, and yeah. we don't have enough translated languages to, to really be all that effective. And we've got to get to Portuguese because of Brazil and the right. immense changes that are happening, happening there. But here I am, uh, a 1,000% technical illiterate, 
and yet I'm seeing the value of it in the places like Belo Horizonte, Brazil, mm-hmm. where these kids come up to me that can't speak a word of English, and they say, oh, Jew University, Jew University, yeah. wonderful, wonderful, please, please, more, 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 uh, please uh, put Portuguese, put Portuguese. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just, I just tell you that uh, at 78, I'm saying, hurry, Debbie, what hurry, are you Debbie. doing? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're, it's in 70 countries now, this, this Equus Online Universe. It's crazy. 70 Over 70 countries? countries. Mm-hmm. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. I've been telling people it's 38 countries. You've got you to go up. It's way up well, over that. About a year ago, somebody told me it was 38 countries. Yeah, there so. you go. Well, I, I know this Horse Radio Network is in over 40 countries. So that just shows you. I mean, that's, that is effective and potent. But the university. Are you telling is, me that our voice is going to 40 countries today? It, it will. <laughs> no. And yeah, it's amazing. But how many hours do you spend in that editing bay, though? I mean, I know you're not a technological person, but. Uh, you spend a lot of time in front of a computer. Oh, man. I, I get way back, and I, I yell my instructions. <laughs> but, um, but I do spend lots of hours. I, just before this call, I spent two and a half hours in front of this uh, one, the Tipping Point uh, DVD that we're creating right now. Uh, it, it, it's, it's incredible when I watch what's happening and I get surprised myself when I hear the voice of Adolfo Cambiasso, the world's greatest polo player, saying, mm-hmm. you changed me, Monty, you changed me, Monty. I get so excited because it's not an ego that I'm feeding, I swear, I swear. It's not an ego that I'm feeding. It's the horses I'm feeding. Think of the next generation of horses having it so much better because of all oh. of this. Think of Adolfo Cambiasso, who starts about two hundred horses a year in his operation in, yep. in, in, in Argentina. And, and think of the next generation of horses that won't have to go through that beating and thrashing and tying of legs that they've done for all these decades now, um, even centuries. And um, it's exciting. It's really exciting. And the queen is just over the moon about it all. And mm. um, I'm so sad to watch her wind down and start talking about doling out the responsibilities because uh, she doesn't deserve to leave us. She has to stay around forever. She has to be one person that God can leave here forever. That's right. Being 87, uh, you know, some people would say, what are you talking about, Monty? She, she can slow down. She's, but you know that that slowing down stuff, uh, you don't grow grass under your feet and uh, you keep it going because that's what keeps you going. Hmm? Yeah, and I, I try to, but the queen is is amazing. You know, um, uh, I spoke with her by telephone recently, and she was just going in to visit um, uh, Prince Philip, who's in the hospital right now uh, yeah. with the surgery, intestinal surgery. And she said, well, actually, you know, he's getting quite old now. <laughs> there she is right behind him, you know, but she just won't. Uh, tell, she she tell doesn't want to face it. Yeah, yeah it, she's a huge advocate for horses. Yeah, yeah, she's she, tough as nails, and she's oh. a huge advocate for horses. And uh, and that's I was going to ask you next what you think about why horses and horsemanship are important to the human race at, at this time. Well, Debbie, we are judged by in many psychological worlds. We are judged by how we treat our animals, our civility. Uh, our our very civilized nature is judged by how we treat our animals. And uh, every psychologist will tell you that more than 90% of the real violators of the world uh, wreaking violence upon others uh, started with animals first and then moved on to human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an easy way to feed that necessity to be violent. And, uh, you know, it's not right. It doesn't make it right when it's a helpless animal. Uh, and it certainly doesn't make it right when it's a child. Uh, nor does it make it right when it's another adult. Thank you, Monty, Dad, for being with us today. And um, I look forward to having you back again. I- I'd love to hear what changes that you have uh, in store for us for the future of horsemanship. You mean we've got to quit now? I don't want to quit. 
I want to keep know. visiting with people and getting this information across, Debbie. Don't let it go long before you get back to me. Okay, I will, Dad. Well, now it's time for this week's Horsemanship Mailbag. And this letter, Debbie, comes all the way from Croatia, which I even have to look on a map to find where it is. (laughs) But uh, let's see what they have to say. It says, in Croatia, it is not easy to find someone who would let you do the nonviolent alternative, they call it, with a horse. And I assume he's talking about training. People just laugh at you. Also, the working place is a problem because here there are no round pens, usually only 20 Mm. by 40. So I put electric fence to make it 20 by 20, but horses don't see electric tape as fence. Mm. And this was by Mustang Girl, which is a name I wasn't expecting for Croatia, actually. (laughs) So... um, Great yeah, question. Must- Great question. And it does show the differences in culture and, and uh, the challenges that other people have to deal with. It does. Yeah. Probably the most important thing she said is that she is trying to help people figure this thing out, this natural horsemanship alternative, they call it. You know, it's like saying alternative medicine. Um, it, it just isn't mainstream is all they're really saying. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that people in Croatia are kind of going uphill and fighting that battle a little bit. And so let's help her out. So one of the most common questions we get is, uh, I can't do natural horsemanship because I don't have a round pen. Uh, you know, round pens have been around since uh, forever. And they're just not a critical factor in applying the concepts of natural horsemanship. Uh, they're just practical. Logistically, what they are is a way for the horse to express his energy without stopping it down. And whenever you want to um, fix something or you have an issue with the horse um, or if you're just training on the horse one of the, the things that horses do naturally is flee they're a flight animal so to express themselves and to use up some of that energy it's best that they go in a circle unfortunately most of our arenas we build in squares <laughs> so right. so that's how we started with all this long lining business you know where you and then you've got people arguing can you long line in the arena while well, I'm riding in the arena it's just a mess so so if you can devise a round pin for um, any situation that you have where you want to work intimately with the horse, it's best that you try to do that. How do you do that if you have a square? Well, you can throw jump poles in the corners. You can throw hail bales in the corners. All you're trying to do is make an octagon out of a square uh, or any, or even, you know, it's an octagon if you throw things in the corners. Um, and some people do use trickle wire. She said something about um, electric, electri- electric yeah. fence. Yeah, she says electric fence. So um, I wouldn't use tri- electric wire. If you're going to no. use the two-inch you know, electric tape, that's better. But uh, It is. It yeah. is. But the horse has got to recognize. I mean, even if you used um, just poles or something, if a horse is fractious or is not that... Um, and trained yet, he's going to just pop over the top of that thing. Right. So it'd be better be better if you did just get a smaller enclosure and then try to tape it. Now, having said that, you horses travel just like deer and antelope and and other animals that are flight animals. They travel in circles, so you can you can still create a circular motion from that horse. They you might have to get get them out of the corners occasionally, but you can do join up and work with them without the corners being filled. And, and they will just, you just have to be in really good shape. <laughs> That's the biggest. You will be huffing and puffing because remember you're trying to keep up with a horse. And so, you know, maybe if it's a mini, it's not so bad, but if for me, I would try to create a round enclosure of some sort. It's just not important to have a perfect round pin. You don't have to go out and spend a lot of money. You just have to create a place where they don't stop down their energy. Well, and we appreciate the letters. Where can people send? We do. Where, where can people send if they, have a, if they have more questions for you? Yeah, thank you. There is a specific email set up for that. It's called askmonty at montyroberts.com. So A-S-K-M-O-N-T-Y at montyroberts.com, M-O-N-T-Y-R-O-B-E-R-T-S.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting new friends, two-legged and four-legged, in Helsinki International Horse Show, Finland, October 17th. South Staffordshire College, Robuston, campus, October 19th. Myers Co. College, Lancashire, UK, October 25th. 
Hart Prairie College, Gloucester, UK, October 30th, Crofton Manor, Equestrian Center, Hampshire, UK, November 1st, and Sao Paulo, Brazil, November 30th through December 1 and December 7 through 8. And lastly, all the way into January, yes, we do give him Christmas, is a night... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a night of inspiration with Monty at Flag is Up Farms in Solvang, California, January 25th, 2014. Glenn, we're into 2014. I know, and I did see some promos for the night of inspiration. That looks like a ton of fun. Oh, my gosh. It's just wonderful. It's it's just fun for us, and it is um, really cool to meet these people who come from. The last one, there was somebody from Argentina. There were other people from England. This time, there are people coming from Germany. It is really cool. By the way, I'm not quite as old as Monty, but I could not do this schedule. <laughs> I'm looking at this schedule going, I don't think I could do that schedule. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, and you're not even seeing all the little things that he does in between because uh, in between these dates, he is actually training the Queen's Horses at the Royal Stables, and uh, he's off giving uh, speeches uh, to colleges, and he does a lot of work with the veterans with PTSD um, and, and like, counseling with that. Um, he's working with the Brook in the U.K. right now, which is a volunteer. Uh, we all get we're going to start sweating just reading I know and I know you have traveled with him in this little insider info and I I have been at the same place he has been away and he he is nonstop so it must be tiring even if you're his daughter traveling with him we'll never retire no (laughs) (laughs) it's true it it, is exhausting but you know his I love what he says about traveling he says I hate traveling but I love getting there and he does. I do, too. I think I agree with him. I, I, you know, I, when we do our remotes and things, I, and I think the same thing that he does. He loves meeting the horses and the people, which is what we, we like. You know, if it wasn't for the airplanes and everything else you have to do to accomplish that, it would be great. That's right. That's but, right. But, yeah, no, it, uh, that's the fun part is when you're actually there. You know, yes, that's, exactly. If only we could do like Bewitched did. I don't know if people remember that, but remember the twinkling of the little yes, nose? Yes, <laughs> yes. Appeared. <laughs> yes, and we just dated ourselves because uh, anybody under 40 hasn't uh, has no idea what we're talking what about. What we're talking about, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> For details right. about today's show, you can go to horsemanshipradio.com where you can find the links, photos, and more information about the guests that Debbie had on today. And as she said, love feedback. So you can follow uh, the show on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash Monty Roberts and Twitter at twitter.com slash Monty underscore Roberts. Uh, many thanks to the sponsors. And be sure to visit all the other great shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, twice a month now. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. <laughs>